Could you grab your Bibles? Wow, that's, I like the echo. Could you grab your Bibles and open up the Galatians? I sound authoritative this morning. Galatians chapter 6. We have two more messages to go in this series on free. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Just ask that God would bless this time. Father, thank you for this worship this morning. It was really needed. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, and I pray that you would, uh, God, do two things I can't. I can't make this clear just in my own ability. I, I need your Holy Spirit to open up the minds of people here. So I pray that, Father, you'd take your word and make it clear. Second thing I can't do is cause people to live this. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would be alive, convicting us, teaching us, but also, Father, motivating us to want to be um, a people of grace who live it in all honesty, humility, and sincerity. Father, really help us to be different people because we heard your word this morning, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have, to, I have to say, I love this book, and I hope that I've been able to, over the last 14 weeks, been able to translate the love of this book to you. I first fell in love with this book as I became a new Christian, as I first began to understand salvation. I grew up in a very religious home, and this book helped me to understand the difference between faith and grace and works and merit, specifically when it came to how is a person first saved, the issues of justification. It also helped me a lot with my sanctification. How do you live that out? But what I realized, those are mostly theology and theories and doctrines. But as a pastor, when I come onto the pulpit, I know that most of you want to know, how do you live this today? Okay, I, I like theology. Most of you would say I like it. But when I leave here, I have to have something that I can, I can do. I can actually live out. And that's what chapter 6 is all about. Chapter 6 is how grace works today. How does it work when somebody fails? When they're caught? How does it work when you learn new things? When you're taught? How does it work when you're to make decisions and you make bad decisions, the knots of life, things you shouldn't do. And so today we're going to talk about grace applied in the, ca in the caught aspects of life when you're taught and in the knots of your life. You don't understand what I mean by that. Let's open up to Galatians 6. We're going to read 1 through 10 and then we're going to apply it. Verse 1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in a word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. 
God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, if we do not give up, or therefore as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. There's a lot of different things in here, and what it really is are different scenarios where grace is applied in your life that you face all the time. It shows us how everything we've learned in chapter 1 through 5 is to be applied today. But before we get to it, before we get to the very specifics, I want to review a little bit about the concept of grace, what has been permeated all through the book of Galatians. Because the, the issue of grace is paramount if you're going to learn how to apply it. We said about the second week into this message that this is how we're going to define grace. Go to the next slide. We said grace, the acronym, is God's riches, all of God's riches, His power, His goodness, His joy, His love, all of His riches are given to us at Christ's expense. All of God's goodness is ours because Jesus died. You could put it like this. God, through Jesus, paid something I couldn't. And we need, to, we need to really grab this. I want you to go to Psalm 49 a second. Psalm 49 in verses 7 through 9. The psalmist writes in verse 7, No man, it's a very certain statement, no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. The phrase in verse 7, no man can redeem the life of another. Redeem, we mostly know it is to be bought back. In this case, in the mind of the person reading this, and this is true all through the New Testament and Old Testament, is redemption has the concept of being bought out of slavery to change owners. And what this is saying is nobody can redeem or pay for you as a slave. What, what am I a slave to? Sin? We are slaves. And this says nobody can buy us out of slavery. In a very truthful way, imagine you being a slave where you actually are chained, hands behind your back, you're walked up front in an auction block, and people are trying to buy you from a wicked owner, but nobody can pay the price. This guy beats you, he works you to a pulp, and he has zero respect for you. This is what Scripture means when we are slaves to sin. Satan and our flesh control us. Now go to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter is towards the end of the New Testament, right before 1 John. 
First Peter chapter 1. Verses 18 and 19. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, this is verse 18, it was not with silver or gold, money, because no payment's enough, it was not with money that you were redeemed. That's not how you were bought out. Well, how were we bought? Verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. You have received God's riches, your freedom, your peace, your joy, the ability to love other people, the ability not to sin anymore. You have that because Jesus gave you His blood. That is phenomenal. And in my opinion, I'm not sure we really process this idea that much. If you don't, the rest of Galatians will make no sense. Make no sense. Personally, I knew, before I really knew Christ, I knew the darkness of the soul. I was lost, and I really knew it. I, I was in despair. I tasted it. I tasted it. In my heart, I, I felt that I deserved eternal condemnation. I knew it. And now that I am saved, and I thank God for that, because now that I'm saved, I really do feel a difference. I, I do have a new life, a new lease on life. And to me, until you feel that, you won't live like a Christian. And I'm afraid most Christians don't live like Christians because they really don't believe this. They really believe they deserve it. But man, when you come from this perspective, it gives you a new lease on life. And what happens is you start forming a new kind of, what I would say, foundation in your soul. I'm going to call it a soil that grace grows out of. And this soil is humility. That soil is so precious, I can't even explain it to you. Because out of that soil grows the most beautiful people. Humility is a state of seeing things as they really are. I once heard somebody said, humility isn't thinking lowly of yourself, it's just not thinking of yourself at all. So what are the three precious flowers that grow out of this? I would say the first one is this. When I truly am humble, when I really get it, that I didn't earn it, number one, it's I'm not able to do this. Jesus had to do it. I didn't save myself. I am not able in my being to please God through effort. I am not able to be holiness and holy in myself. I'm not able. I'm really not. The second flower that grows out of this is I'm not better. I'm not better than anyone. I'm not. We all came into this world as a condemned slave to sin. If I'm a condemned slave, tell me, who am I better than? Who? And to me, it is here on this I'm not better that your average Christian has never really been honest about. That really, without Jesus, you don't have anything. I think some people, and, and this goes to the third one, it's really linked to the second one. The third flower is this, I am not deserving of anything. I don't, I don't deserve anything. It's interesting, when John the Baptist, this guy that came before Jesus, his cousin, the one that was to prepare the way of the Lord, they asked him, they said, are you the Messiah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? I am not. Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the, 
are you this uh, new Elijah? And he said, I am not. And then a guy came along, his name was Jesus, and he said, I am. I am. I am. And in my mind, the I am of Jesus will never grow in your life until you say, I am not. I'm just telling you, this is essential before we get to Galatians 6. Because you're going to see everything, every instruction out of Galatians 6 comes out of humility. Everyone. Out of this idea of grace has been given to me freely. And then when I get it, his life just overflows in each and every scenario. So let's see what the scenarios are. Let's go to Galatians 6. I find four. There's Really, you can get a whole lot more, but I want to crystallize and I'm going to give you four. The first is going to be the scenario being caught, the scenario being taught, and then the two scenarios of not, when people do things they shouldn't be doing. The first one is caught. What happens when someone is caught? Last week we learned through Jared that our old sin nature is still there. We have to deal with it every day. He talked about how you have to crucify your sin Full nature so your spiritual nature can take control. But to top it off, Scripture ups the ante and says not only do we have a sin nature, but Satan's real, he's alive, and he knows how to tempt that sin nature. Actually, I once heard Satan's like a master fisherman. He's an expert. An expert fisherman knows what lure to find what fish in either a stream, a river, a lake, or an ocean. They know which lure. So in the same way, Satan knows which lure gets each one of you individually. He knows how to craft it, which will hook you. So he puts on the lure that gets you. Some people, it's prestige, money. Some people, it's lust. Puts it on his hook, casts it, bloop, goes in the water, goes down, and he was waiting. When you grab it, what he does is he lets you swim a little bit. And he does this because he wants to get the hook deeper. He lets you swim a little bit, thinking you're getting away with it. And then what he does, right at the time when he knows it's going to cause you and your family the most damage, he reels you in. You know what 1 Corinthians 10 says? So if you think you're standing firm, meaning if you think you are getting away with something, be careful lest you fall. Because people fall all the time. So the question then is, what does grace do when somebody does get caught? What happens when somebody does fail? How does grace respond? That's what verses 1-4 through Listen to what it says. Brothers, if someone is caught, and somebody will be caught, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself. Or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Let's first talk about when someone is caught. Honestly, this is, this is, verse 1, the hardest part of being a pastor. I remember I thought being a pastor, man, you just preach. That's it. And I get to study the Bible 30 hours a week. 
I remember my professor of theology said, ideally, if you could get about 25 to 30 hours, it'd be great to really prepare for your sermon. But what he didn't tell you is you start getting phone calls at 11 o'clock at night. Or you get somebody that is it sitting outside your office the first day of the week. And they're desperate. Pastor, my daughter's pregnant. Pastor, my husband has porn on his computer. There's a leader in a church pastor who's uh, he's, in, he's having an affair. Pastor, as, a, as a, if you go on Facebook, if you notice, my wife is posting selfies of herself at the bar with her friends, and she's drunk. What, is, what does grace do when someone's caught? What do you do when someone's caught? I would say there's three responses when somebody's caught. Usually, remember we had, as Pastor Kenny even illustrated, we have persons... People who live in license, that means you just can do whatever you want. You have people who live by law, those are the adolescents, and you have mature people who live by grace. That's what we've been talking about. What happens when someone's caught? How does a person of license respond? Usually they say, let's sweep it under the rug. Because you know what? We all do it. We're all sinners. We all sin. So don't worry about it. Just don't do it again, okay? You're caught. All right. I'll keep it quiet. Just don't do it again. And if you do, don't tell. I don't want to know. That's license. How about a person who lives by the law? What do they do? A person who lives by the law gets angry first. They get angry and they want to condemn. And you know what their heart says? I would never do that. Because legalists compare. They're competing. And the legalist loves it when somebody's caught because it gives them an opportunity to look better. So they tell all their friends. And the way they tell their friends usually is, I have a concern. I have a prayer request. You know, this girl's been pregnant. And she did this, 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 and this, and this. And this. Oh, oh, that's terrible. Pastor better do something about it. Old school legalists would have them come up front and our objective is to condemn them. The law always wants to throw the first stone. Always. But the person who lives by grace humbly proceeds just as Galatians says. And you'll notice it comes out of a soil of humility. The first thing it says is, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, you who are walking with the Spirit, that's the whole idea. Remember what Jared said last week? You walk by the Spirit. And the idea is, you who are walking with the Spirit, let them restore the person. Does it say condemn? No. Does it say commiserate? Commiserate means, oh, we all do it. No, it doesn't say that. It says restore. Love wants to bring an erring brother or sister back. What did Jesus do when the lady was caught in adultery? Did he say, no big deal? Did he throw the stone or did he say, go and sin no more, stop it? Love wants to bring an erring brother back to life. 
to walk with the Spirit once again. The attitude of grace is not superiority. Remember, it's humility. And humility does two things. It recognizes that number one, I'm not better, and it recognizes that I'm not able, so I could fall too. See, if you notice, it says, watch yourself. Or you also may be tempted. See, if what pride does is pride doesn't make you better, it makes you vulnerable. Proud people are dangerous situations. Oh, I would never do that. I'd never have. I'd never have porn on my computer. I just wouldn't do that. And then they walk by a magazine store. The goal in all disciplines, specifically you say in a larger scale church discipline, or even the goal in your home, the goal with your friends, is to bring someone back, not to put them on display as a condemned failure. I knew, son, you would turn out that way. Get out of the house. Make me sick. You embarrass me. Cry for him. Be broken. That's what grace does. So many times people want to use the law to put the stranglehold of pressure to, to make somebody change. And what they use is guilt, anger, threats, and the objective is to hurt the person as if they are the taskmaster, and this person is in jail under their authority. What? We've been let out of our jail from Christ. Why do we put other people in jail? We don't have that right. The Spirit of God uses love and sincere brokenness. You are not better. You are bought. So act like it. That's what humility is all about. An interesting thing about this passage it says, because you were saved, and the idea is you were not able to save yourself, we should feel compelled to help those who are not able. That's what verse 2 says. Verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens. Because we were helped when we were not able by Christ, we should feel compelled to help those who are really suffering and weak. And then because you're not better, verse 3 says, if you think you are, you're deceiving yourself. You're really nothing. That goes back to humility again. And because you didn't deserve it, don't act like you're entitled. That's what four and five's about. Each one of you should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. You're not entitled to have everybody do everything for you. It's interesting, verse 2 and verse 5 have this idea of carrying burdens. Actually, some versions say carry each other's burdens. In verse 5, each one should carry his own burden. The NIV tries to make it each one should carry each other's burdens and then you should carry your own load. The best way I can think about this, recently, Mike, you'd understand this perfectly. Mike Ho will understand this perfectly. He always takes people out to Wyoming to go hiking. They have to carry, how, what would you say the average poundage weight is of a backpack? 35 pounds. What do you carry sometimes? You carry about 50. Ted, you carry sometimes 70, don't you? No, never? And so these guys, they'll take groups out to go hiking. And they, everybody has to carry what Mike just said, a 35-pound backpack. Now, when you go hiking, they have level trails, but then they have trails that are straight up a cliff. And sometimes, honestly, people can't carry it. So the stronger guys will go up the cliff, put their load down, and come back down and take somebody else's pack to help them. That's verse 2. There's people in the church. They just can't do it on their own. You got to help them. You got to help them. 
But then you get around verse 5. When you do get to that level ground, everybody should be carrying their own pack. Don't expect other people to keep carrying your pack. You have been designed to be responsible. We have so many people, when they're victims, they think they're entitled to have everybody do everything for them. No. You form what's called dependence, and that destroys you. Carry your own pack. Get a job. Don't sin. Be mature. That's the idea. Why? Because of humility. That's if you're caught. Second scenario, verse 6. If anyone who receives instruction in a word must share all good things with his instructor when you are taught. This might seem like a small little verse, and as I was meditating on it, I realized the more, when, when the more you disciple people, the more you start seeing that it's hard for people as they grow in Christ to keep that humility. It's funny, some people who really start maturing in Christ start losing that maturity, sadly. That humility. They start becoming competitive. Almost comparing themselves with each other, saying, man, I'm so much farther along than the average lazy Christian. And there's a comparative level. Sometimes you get students that go to seminary, and when they go to seminary, they go away to college, they will start reading a new book, thinking nobody's read this book but me. And they start thinking they're a little bit smarter than mom and dad who are back on the farm and they're hacks back there and they're a little bit less sophisticated. Actually, uh, listen to a quote by a Christian professor as he noticed the attitude of some of his new students. He writes, I find that many Christian students have allowed knowledge and critical study of art, music, philosophy, in other areas of higher learning to cause arrogance and sophistication, to plant a bitter root of doubt and disdain for their early Christian learning. And what he says arrogance is, is, yeah, well, you know, the rest of the world is clueless and ignorant now that I am enlightened. And then he says sophistication believes nobody I grew up with or are back home or my mom and dad are as smart as I am in these new profs. Now they know what's going on. And he says this is simply not true. And in fact, arrogance is one of Satan's most deadly tools to throw impressionable young Christians into vast mazes of confusion and destruction for many years of their young adult lives. I know a lot of guys, once they go to college, they say, I don't know if I can believe this Bible anymore. There's a lot of uh, different kind of textual criticism, redactive criticism, and uh, deconstructionist criticism, which kind of says this is a bunch of bunk. It was written by a bunch of white men wanting power. It's weird, but it's true. People get that way. What the world has failed to understand is just how beautiful it is to be grateful, to come back and be thankful for the heritage that you've been given. That's what this says. If anyone who receives instruction in a word, share all the good things with your instructor. Come back and tell them, thank you, and this is what I've learned. This is amazing. I love it when I used to be a youth pastor and students would come back three or four years later and they'd say, Pastor Chris, I'm witnessing to this guy, and I read this book, and this really works. What do you think? I said, man, I've never learned that before, but that's exciting. That's amazing. Kevin DeYoung puts it like this, talking about humility. He said, think of your Sunday school teachers. Think of your youth group leaders. 
Think of your pastors, think of your dad, think of your grandparents, think of your mom. Did they not have your best interests in heart? Did they not love you? Were they imposters? Were they wrong in everything they stood for? Is it reasonable for you to conclude that those who came before you, those who thought you taught you to trust the Bible, those who have more experience and probably more wisdom than you, that suddenly they are benighted morons? Are they deserving of your cynicism, rejection, or scorn? Parents and pastors aren't perfect, even the really good ones. But here is the point, and it's very appropriate for teens and 20-somethings who like to question every authority except their own. Before you leave behind what you used to believe about the Bible and God, consider who taught you to believe what you used to believe. This kind of understanding takes humility. And that's what verse 6 is all about. Scenario number three, we're going to find in verses 7 through 10, two different issues, I believe. Some people have actually linked verse 7 and 8 with 6, what your teachers have taught. But you'll, I believe you can kind of take it this way too. There's no cut and dry thing. So I'm going to bring up two more scenarios. The third scenario is this. What does grace do when somebody's not making wise choices? When somebody is not making wise choices. Last week, Pastor Jared kept telling us, don't, don't sow to the flesh. What if somebody does? What do you do? What does grace do? Listen to what is said. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature, will reap destruction. To the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, he will reap eternal life. This is the principle of sowing. What you, you will reap what you sow. If you plant a wheat seed, you will have a big harvest of wheat. If you sow an apple seed, you'll have an apple tree. If you sow to evil, you'll get all the things that Jared talked about last week on the side of evil. If you sow to righteousness, you will get love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. And God will not be mocked. You can't avoid it. You can't think you're getting away with it. I'm going to plant evil, but out's going to come joy. It doesn't work like that. It won't work like that. If you notice in this passage, it seems like the main emphasis, especially of 7 and the beginning of 8, is on the person who sows to the flesh, the sin nature. And the emphasis is on, if you are sowing and you are sinning right now, he's saying God's watching. His vigilant eye never stops. Not only that, he's not a gullible fool. You're not getting away with it. That's the point. Grace addresses a person as a mature adult. That's the whole point of maturity. God's talking to us as a mature adult, and what he's saying, go ahead and do what you want to do, but you'll have to pay for it. God will not be mocked, and you will reap what you sow. But I'm going to treat you as an adult. The legalist, however, wants to control your behavior. What most people who are in the law do is they start building fences and walls. And they say, don't jump over this. And the way to stop you is they use guilt, angry looks to keep you in line. This works as long as people are in sight. The authorities are in sight. But once they leave, people usually start sowing to the flesh. 
Prison wardens understand this, as you need bars on people who are flesh-driven. Pastors know this, and most of all, parents know this. The law only works by direct force. That's it. This isn't a passage of direct force. This is appealing to a mature adult. You are going to be responsible for your actions. We all know when the cat's away, the mice will play. The law can only do so much. I just wanted to give one example. Take homeschooling, for instance. I think homeschooling is great, but if you don't teach maturity and personal responsibility, you may be setting your kids up for the most dangerous, tempting world they could ever imagine. You can't lock your child up forever, and if they don't learn how to live by grace, how to make mature decisions and harness self-control, they will be in big trouble when they are asked to become adults. Grace lets people know they are living for God, not a set of rules or a group of people. You will reap what you sow. It's a principle that always applies. It always applies. When people come into my office for marital counseling, a lot of times, you know, you have these people that are going to be married in a year, sometimes in a couple months. And one of my first principles is to say, do you want God's covenantal blessing? Absolutely. So I will say what I believe Scripture requires is purity. Stay sexually pure. Do you agree to that? And most will say, yeah, absolutely. Smile, sure. Absolutely. Do you know a lot of times most of them are lying to me? I can't tell that. Later on I find out. But I will tell them this. God will honor you if you honor him and God sees what you do. I don't. So you can lie to me, but you're not lying to God. He knows. The fourth scenario, I believe, talks about this idea when somebody is not, they're not recognized, they're not feeling appreciated, they're wanting to just quit. They've been sacrificing too much for Jesus and they're just wore out. Listen to what it says. Verse 9, let us not become weary. And the idea of weary is just exhausted and done. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Honestly, i got to be truthful, and Jesus was truthful about it. I think a lot, of, a lot of guys you see on TV aren't truthful about this, but Christianity's hard. It's not a name it and claim it deal. It's not you're going to get the best life now. Sometimes you never do on this earth. It's tough. But did you know Christianity is also not a right? It's a privilege. It's a gift that God has bestowed upon you. It's a noble honor that God has given to you. Remember, we were first slaves. This goes back to humility. We were slaves deserving zero. Zip. Jesus was not earned by you and He didn't pick you because you were better. I have found most of these feelings up here. I'm not recognized. I've been working at the church and nobody's giving me an appreciation dinner. We try to do that, but... We, we fall through the cracks because we're busy too. I, I, I just don't want to continue anymore. I've been doing this and 
Nobody will take my place if there's this. People give up easy, and I find that these feelings can cripple you if you really believe God owes you something. It will cripple you. If you really believe your Christianity is kind of deserved, when you start feeling this way, it will destroy you. What does, truthfully, and I know this is a harsh question, but what does God owe you? Our culture promotes victimhood. The Bible promotes grace. Undeserved kindness. A dead Savior as the cost of my sin on a cross. I don't deserve that. I just don't. He was perfect. Have you ever had, have you ever had a pity party for your child? Have you ever had that? It's, see, it's, see you've got to understand. You want to talk about a victim? I had four older sisters. I was a victim. And sometimes, because we had a big family, my dad would have chore lists on the refrigerator. Sometimes my mom and dad would go out to dinner. And on my chore list, I, my number one chore I hated more than anything was doing the dishes. I hated it. I can't tell you how much I hated it. And I would see Chris, number four, number four, doing the dishes. No! And I can remember my parents would leave and I'd be on the couch going, I don't want to do the dishes. And my sisters would gather around. They'd say, come here, you guys. All right, we're going to have a party for Chris, a pity party. Are you ready? Let's go. One, two, three. Oh, poor little guy. Do the dishes. One time I didn't do the dishes. My sister Gina grabbed me, put me on, put me on a chair, and my sister Steph wiped cat food on my face to get me to do the dishes. That's victimhood, see? You may feel the same way. I'm not recognizing. I'm not feeling appreciated. You might feel that this idea of a pity party is unduly harsh. Thank you for serving. But Jesus died for you. The innocent Son of God died. I love how this passage ends. It's really neat. It says, verse 10, therefore, and he gives all these lists of things, therefore, as we have opportunity, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. How, Jesus said, how will they know that you're mine? You will. Go to the next slide. Have you ever noticed how we tend to criticize our own first? We get mad at people we know the most first. This is true in marriages, families, and churches. It's easy to rip on each other. We are sometimes the hardest to love. And I think that's why he says we should be the first to show love. Because God has identified us through how we love one another. So, this is how we apply grace. We are to do it. It's how we've been asked to live, and that's why we've been saved. To live in grace and humility. This past summer, 
about a month ago now, I was able to go see my mom. It's been about a year and a half. Finally, I got to see my mom. I love to visit my mom, and I realized we were talking. It's been nine years since my dad died. It's amazing. I can't believe it, but it's nine years almost, well, next month, my dad has died. So I like to go home to help my mom out a little bit, you know. So I'll go home, and when I get there, she'll have little nicks and knacks for me to do. You know, fix this door. It's falling off the hinge. Could you cut this tree limb? It's falling down. Or just, uh, could you help with the pool a little bit? It's sagging. Can you help me with that? So I just, Mom, what do you need me to do? So I'll go do some of that stuff. Sometimes she'll take me out to see her pond. She's got these fish, and she'll show me that she'll point out the different fish to me, and I'll sit and I'll listen to her. And sometimes my mom will ask me, all the kids are coming over, all my nephews who are now old, and they eat like crazy. She'll go, Chris, I got some meat. Could you go cook it? Which my dad would do on his grill. He's got a big grill, so I cook it. And this year it was really cool. We had a lot of time, so my mom and I were able to partner up in a game of Pinochle, and we killed everybody. And she looked at me and she said, you play just like your dad. That's a compliment. Wouldn't it be cool when somebody's caught in sin and the way you treat them, somebody says, you treat me just like Jesus. You're just like your Father in heaven. Wouldn't it it be really cool when you come back to a person that's taught you a lot about Christ and you come up to him and you say, man, I am growing in Christ. Thank you. And when you walk away, people say, I smell the Father in their life. We are not to be little kids. I thought that was one of the greatest illustrations. We are not to be little kids who just do whatever they want. That's not why God made us. We are not to be adolescents who do things when dad's around and we skirt the rules when he's gone. We are to be mature adults. And mature adults are humble. Are you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this book. I thank you for how just how Paul gets down even into the small areas of our lives and nooks and crannies. I know, God, there are people that are in this church that get caught in sin an awful lot because we, there's so many reasons. Help us who are not caught to be broken, not to be condemning. I pray, God, for the people who are being discipled and growing in Christ. I pray as they grow, I pray they'd be more sweet more humble. I pray, Father, that we will um, learn to live by your oversight, that when we are alone and mom and dad's not there or our coach or our teacher's not there, that, God, we'll make wise decisions because we know we'll reap what we sow. Then I pray, Father, for those who really are tired and they feel they're just, they're not recognized. God, help them to hang on because they will reap a reward. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray.